Kay Morris, and you are about to embark on the next Pioneer Knowledge Services Because You Need to Know, a digital resource for you to listen to folks share their experience and knowledge around the field of knowledge management and nonprofit work. Adam Walker is sitting in Atlanta, Georgia, wondering what's going to happen next. And as we look at 2023 rolling out ahead of us, we got 11 months left. What's on the agenda, Adam? What's happening? And a lot for me personally, a lot of, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of learning, working on some skills, working on Mandarin right now, and a whole lot of podcasting. Mandarin, are are you going to podcast in Mandarin? What's the no, no, not going to podcast in. No, I'm, I'm learning how to say like I want tofu. Like I got, <laughs> I got that. Like I'm good with that level of Mandarin at the moment. But why Mandarin? What's the driver? What's the ambition? Oh man, well that's a long story. Uh, so we have one, uh, we have five kids, um, yep. my wife and I, and uh, one of our children is adopted from China. We brought him home when he was two and a half. We've been in process of adopting his foster brother that's still in China hmm. uh, since 2019, but COVID put a hold on that. I became hopeful that 2023 might be the year we finally get to travel and go pick him up. Uh, he's 13 now. so That's exciting. Yeah. So I'll be able to order tofu pretty much. <laughs> I'll, I'll be able to ask where the bathroom is and order tofu, maybe ask where the airport is. Like that, we'll see about that. So, you know. Are you using a uh, a favorite software for that education? Yeah, yeah. So I'm using a couple things. One is called, I think it's called Hello. Let me look at my phone. Right sure. It's called Hello Chinese, uh, which is a fantastic app for learning Chinese in particular. I'm also using Anki for flashcards. If you haven't used Anki for flashcards, it's, it's pretty amazing. And then I'm listening to a book. I've listened to it once already, but I've listened to it again. It's called uh, Learning Mandarin Chinese with Paul Noble. It's pretty amazing. Uh, so I spend about 30 minutes a day at least minimum on the skill. Lately, it's been more like 40, 45 minutes. Part of my New Year's resolutions is like tracking my time doing things rather than saying I'm going to do this. Oh, wait a minute now. Tell me about this. Tell me about this tracking time. Shameless plug. I just wrote a blog post about this on my blog at adamjwalker.com. <laughs> and uh, and so now I realized that historically I do pretty terrible like saying like, I'm going to do this or I'm going to write this book or I'm going to do this or whatever. If I just say like, I'm going to spend X amount of time doing this thing and then I've got a timer on my phone home screen that I can use and time it. And then I have a, a Google sheet where I'm logging all my time. Then I'll actually do it. Uh, I decided I was going to do essentially three things. I'm going to time track four things actually this year. One is I want to read for an hour a day. So I've been doing that. I want to write. I've been working on a book about podcasting. So I want to write 15 minutes a day in that book. I want to learn a skill right now. It's Mandarin for 30 minutes a day. And I want to play video games for less than an hour a day. Uh, that's the other, I mean, I don't usually play for an hour a day, but I do get on with my friends and I can lose track of time occasionally. And my kids go to bed early and I don't necessarily. Well, the time tracking is an interesting formula and you bring up something that refreshes a, an idea that I had planted in my brain probably two, three years ago, where I was talking about as a self-employed business person, I hated to do the bookkeeping. When I first started out in a business, my first one a long time ago, I would just have like a box of all the stuff, you know, the receipts yep. and all that yep. jazz. Yep. And then I would just, at the end of the year, go to the accountant, and here you go, and have fun, fun. see you later. Yeah. So his advice was, everybody's got that part that they don't like, that they really begrudgingly know they have to do, but they spend all their energy mm -hmm. fighting doing it. He said the best thing in his application is if you have an egg timer and just set it for 60 yep. minutes 
He said, you can do anything for yep. 60 minutes. And there's a psychological trigger somehow that says, oh, I only have to do this for, for an hour oh, or 30 minutes or whatever you, the bucket you want to put that. And it kind of gives you permission to just say, okay, I'm going to do what I can yep. in 30 minutes or whatever the time block is. And then that's- Well, and, that's, and not that, but the flip side is also true. So in his book, uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear, he talks about how if you're having trouble starting something, commit to the first two minutes. Like I'm just, I'm going to start, I'm going to do it for two minutes. And what you'll find is by the time you're two minutes in, like it's not a big deal to keep going. And so like whether it's exercising or writing or going on a run or whatever it is, like commit to two minutes and then you'll yeah. almost, almost always go beyond. That. So what's, what do you think the psychological gunk is in our brain that keeps us from just doing something that simple? What is it? Man, I wish I, I wish <laughs> I, if I knew that I would be a world famous <laughs> author and speaker and coach, and I would be super rich. That wouldn't happen. I didn't answer that question. So, so you don't have no, I mean, any answer to the question. I, yeah. I mean, on. I think it's the we often know what we should do, but we lack the motivation to do it. But then once we're in it, we recognize like this isn't really all that bad at all. Yeah, exactly. I'm scared. It's it's yeah. the hurdle of starting is so great, and once you started, it's like oh. Well, Along with that, let's keep going. I want to find out what your motivation is and how you got started in the world of nonprofit work. I got started actually as a teenager. I started my first nonprofit as a teenager. I uh, put together like Christian-based youth rallies. I put together. And then we also did like a, a ministry to people in Little Five Points, which was kind of a rundown part of the city at the time. It's not now. It's pretty fancy now. But it was run down at the time to people experiencing homelessness. So we'd get on there and we'd give them like coffee in the winter and blankets and pillows and stuff. We had like a little coffee shop thing that we did a couple nights uh, a month as well. And then uh, that just kind of turned into like just a passion for doing good. So at one point I, I tried to start a church, which I don't recommend doing. That's a ter <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. And uh, I mean, I mean, look, people do it. And that's, I got a great buddy that's been very successful at it. I was really, really terrible at it. And so, uh, but I did that and, and that sort of segued into my work in marketing and then the marketing sort of did well, and that segued back into my work in, into nonprofits. And so why nonprofits, I think, is that I really like supporting people that are doing good in the world, that are trying to help other people, that are trying to really make a difference. I don't always want to be the person leading that nonprofit necessarily. Sometimes I do, but in general, I like supporting them a lot. You're in that supportive role, but where did that mechanism, uh, where did it come from in you? I, I understand you were young and you started or not, well, uh, but what was the indicator to you that you should even care? Was I, it a parent? Was well, it I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, like my, you know, my my mom's a, a pretty good example. I mean, she had a lucrative law practice and decided to make no money and become a judge instead, and so <laughs> to, to impact people's lives. And she's made a profound impact on so many people's lives. And I know all those stories, you know, growing up. And, and my dad uh, was always the he's the guy rooting for the underdog. You know, whether it's political parties or whether it's like watching the football game like I just want the underdog to win like he that's his that's the guy like he's always rooting for the underdog and so maybe that's ingrained in me a bit and also just a, a, a I don't know if I would even call it at the time but a recognition that that I had a lot I wouldn't have said this at the time but a, a lot of privilege like I recognize like I've got a lot like for example you know when I was growing up there was still orphanages and my dad and I would go to the orphanage and like donate clothes. And it's like, oh, well, there's kids right here in this city that don't have parents or clothes. And like I do. And so I think it's just kind of being exposed to those things and recognizing that there's a lot of people that need some help. 
Was this influenced because of the urbanism you lived in, do you think? Because a lot of people can live regardless, rural, urban, wherever they are, Yeah, but seem to have some blinders on <laughs> yeah. to those types of yeah. needs, right? So the problem with me is, and I think this is often the problem with a lot of people, is that once you see something, once you learn something, once you know something, you can't unsee it, unlearn it, and unknow it. Once I know as a kid that I can take my my prized starter Raiders jacket, which God knows why I had a starter Raiders jacket. I didn't live anywhere near where the Raiders were play, but but it was cool, you know. It was cool. But I know it was kid, cool. Yeah, I know as a kid I can take my starter Raiders jacket and I can donate that to a kid in an orphanage. And now that kid has a jacket and I can look that kid in the eye like you can't unknow that. For for us, I mean, we need to expose kids to those things. We need to expose kids to oh, yeah. to people that are in need and let them know that this could be us very easily. Aspiration and inspiration, and I use those two synonymously, at least in this conversation, is that because there is a spark that basically happens that make people aware of caring. Yeah. The need yeah. to do that. Some slight, maybe it's a soulful level, maybe it's just a ideological level. I, I don't know what, what, what bucket you want to throw that into, but it's yeah. always amazing to me when you find people that care right, yep. is a humanistic element that I don't know how you teach it, you know, other than observation, yeah. you know, and because right. it's almost like going back to our initial, if you set the timer for 30 minutes, you can do anything. Mm. When you tell a kid, and I've had a few kids, so I'm, I'm just referring to this in that framework. If you tell a kid, don't do this or go do that or what have you, there's an automatic subconscious maybe trigger that goes off that mm. oh well dad said i'm, I'm not right whatever not uh, i'm sure that's yeah. not your case yeah yeah, case. Never, yeah never right. Is right yeah i'm just really curious how do you bring that to somebody's awareness to the point where the framework starts to sink in that maybe we should care for each other that's a great question i think about it in the context of my own kids i'm not entirely sure i've done an amazing job of exposing the <laughs> part of that's COVID 19 I and mean, that sort of like put the kibosh on exposing them to a lot of things including COVID at the time yeah. you know but it, but it has been on my mind recently like for example to go down and spend some time in, in helping people that are unsheltered in downtown atlanta i've got a project i want to do podcast related with people that are unsheltered and, and i want to take some of my kids to to see that and understand that we try to t we try to travel with our kids that they see things they experience things they they understand that there's different ways of living we've taken actually we took all the kids to china on a crazy trip in 2019 <laughs> and you know like you get exposed to a lot like these people live very differently than we live and they value things very differently than we do and so i think the more exposure we can offer to other generations the more we can begin to open their eyes agreed let's move forward to the time frame where 48 and 48 became something in your target of getting things done. Right. Just quickly explain what it is and how it came about. 48 and 48 is a nonprofit that puts on events with the ideal that being that we build 48 free nonprofit websites in 48 hours. Now, some of our events are smaller, so we might not build a full 48 sites. I think the most we built in one event was probably 61 sites, if I recall correctly. We started in 2015. I got involved by accident. Um, I got a call. I mean, I did. <laughs> just walking yeah. down the street yeah. and all of a sudden. A sewer. Um, you know, I got a, I got a call. You know, I've got a buddy. Uh, his name's Jeff Hellemeyer. He's big in the marketing space here in Atlanta. We were, we were kind of becoming good friends around 2015. And, and I was running a company at the time that was a digital marketing company, and we built websites. And so he calls me. He's like, hey, do you think we could do an event to build five nonprofit 
websites in a weekend? I was like, yes, no problem. Five websites in a weekend? Done. He goes, great. How about 10? Sure. Okay, great. How about 20? Okay, sure. Okay, how about, can we do, like, so he just kept writing. He finally gets to 50. He's like, can we do 50 websites? And we got like, yes, but you have to stop there. Like, you got to stop. He goes, all right, we'll back it down to 48 and we'll call it 48 and 48 because it's 40 websites in 48 hours. So I said, yes, like, I will help you do this. And I signed on thinking, like, I'm volunteering to help you start. You're, you're starting this thing. I'm going to volunteer. It's going to be great. So we get to the first meeting and, you know, Jeff's gathered a bunch of people. And these are a bunch of people I don't know. And a lot of them, I mean, just to be very transparent, like I'm running a very small web design company. These are people have had much larger careers than I have at much larger companies, much more esteemed. And we're sitting in the room and Jeff's like, all right, we're going to get the meeting started. You know, I'm Jeff Hillemeyer. This is my co-founder, Adam Walker. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I just co-founded. Lord, that's cool. Let's, let's do that. Like, that sounds great. So we did it. You know, we pulled it off in, in 2015 with an Atlanta event. The next year we decided like, hey, we did it in Atlanta with people, with our friends. It worked. Can we do it in another city where we don't have friends? So we did it in Atlanta and New York the next year. And then we expanded and expanded and expanded. At some point before COVID, I think we were in like six or seven cities. It was fantastic. And and I spent a very little bit of time as the executive director. And, and thankfully, I w- it just wasn't a great fit for me. We now have an executive director, uh, Seema, who's amazing. It does a fantastic job running the agency. And I can kind of go back to that role of just being a like super volunteer, like rah-rah cheerleader kind of dude. That's my current role. We went from the recommendation, don't start a church. But now we're on the other side of that. Yeah, start a nonprofit. So well, for sure. how easy yeah. was the process? For those out there that don't know how to create a nonprofit, well, how easy or hard was in it? In all fairness, uh, we found a volunteer that was a CPA that knew the process for starting a nonprofit, and she was just amazing and took care of basically all the heavy lifting. I feel like if you're trying to start a nonprofit that really has some heart behind it and you've got some kind of network, you can probably find someone like that. I don't believe that starting a 501c3 is necessarily all that difficult, but there are some hoops to jump through that you just need to be aware of. What would be your recommendation uh, for someone that does have a passion and has a caring for somebody in the world that wants to help? If they wanted to start a nonprofit, what would be your top three items they need to start with? Okay, so first I would say don't. Don't, <laughs> don't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, listen, I'm being completely serious. If you are thinking about starting a nonprofit, and there is any possible way you can be talked out of it, you should be talked out of it. Starting nonprofits are for people that are so compelled and so passionate and so willing to overcome every obstacle that they cannot not do it. I'm just saying, don't do it unless you have to do it and then do it and dive right in. So commitment, apparently commitment is- Well, commitment, passion, I mean, it, tsunami of will comes to mind. Like, I don't, you know, like, I've, it's just hard. Like, you just have to know that. It's it is hard. hard. Every turn yeah, is I mean, difficult. is hard. Every piece of it is hard. And you have to be willing to embrace that and walk through that. It's much harder uh, in my mind to start a nonprofit than it is to start a for-profit. I've started many of both and starting a nonprofit is more, much more difficult um, and, and much more taxing on you as an individual. So just just know that going in. So what was, sorry, what was the question? It was three so, things about- <laughs> Three things. So commitment to embrace the, the terribleness of the void uh, all by yourself. I get that. All right. Yeah, yeah. There's three, but it's three things I would tell you. Like, is that, yeah. that would, okay. Yeah. I think the second is um, you've got to be able to explain what you're doing in a simple, compelling narrative. Nonprofits are just 
terrible at this. Like if you go to like I like for example, I was on the marketing committee for a local nonprofit that shall remain unnamed. Uh, and it was a, it's one of the best known local Atlanta nonprofits that there is founded by an extremely well-known reputable person. And I'm on the marketing committee. So I sit down with the head of marketing for this nonprofit and I say, okay, listen, I've known about this organization for literally years since I was a child. I've known the name of this organization. Please tell me what you do. Okay. That like, that literally was my, like, I've known about you for 30 years. Tell me what you do. She got in front of a whiteboard and spent 15 minutes mapping out this. <laughs> I left there still having no idea what they did. No clue whatsoever. This is the head of marketing for a very reputable nonprofit. You've got to be able to tell somebody. I mean, it goes back to that elevator pitch. I know that's yeah, cliche, yeah, I know. Yeah. but come but on. You've got to be able to say what you do very simply, very quickly. Like it's absolutely critical. So that's that's number two. I would guess the first thing that raises a red flag in your marketing mentality is if you got to rely on a whiteboard, that's, that's bad. Good. That's bad. <laughs> that's not good. I'm saying, and I've been a part of a lot of nonprofits and the, the majority of them cannot express what they do in simple terms. Another great example. Wow. So we're at the first 48 and 48 event. It's 2015. My son, who I believe at the time was eight years old, is is there. So we got the kids involved. And we, we put in a video, I've got the video to say, we put a video camera on him. Hey, what is 48 about? My eight-year-old could explain it to the camera impromptu without me having coached him whatsoever. He just heard me talk about it. He totally understood. If an eight-year-old cannot explain what you do, there is a problem and you need to reassess. I mean, all I'm trying to say. Uh, what was the name of the guy, the, the TV show where he would go in and re revolutionize a restaurant from the ground up? Yeah, yeah, now right? I know what you're talking about, yeah. But yeah. he would usually, big muscle guy, right? So he would usually yeah. start looking at the menu. And if you've got page after page after page of just all over the place food items, he's like, yeah. the first thing to do is make that simple. Yep. Get it down to a few yep. things you can knock out of the park and be yep. happy with that. So it's almost like that. You have to have it concise and easily understandable. And yep. that's not always easy to do if nobody's driving. No. It's incredibly hard to do. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things to do in marketing is to take the complexity of an organization or an idea or a movement and turn it into something that's bite-sized and tangible okay. and simple. So number two, that's number two. So, uh, so number, number three, yeah, I think that's number two. Number three. I mean, I would just say build the right team, uh, build the right team, gather the right volunteers. Uh, you're only going to be as good as the people that surround you. So whether those are volunteers or sponsors or benefactors of some kind or staff or whatever they are, just build the right team for that right moment. I mean, for, you know, great example, 1448 is a perfect example. Like, so Jeff knows so many high level people. It's in like to this day, it astounds me, his network. So you could have asked any one of a ton of people with a ton of reputation and weight and power and yeah. authority yeah. and money and all these things that I don't have. And he could have asked any one of them to start 1448 with him. But he, he strategically asked me specifically because I ran a company that built the type of websites that we needed to build. Uh, so I had the expertise to go, okay, this is the infrastructure. Within a pretty short amount of time, I mean, I think it was eight months maybe of planning, I was able to come up with an entire operation system to make it all work. Here's what we need from the nonprofits. Here's the sign-up process. Here's the questionnaires we're going to give them. Here's all the stuff that we're going to have to have for the teams. Here's what the teams, yeah. here's how the team should be built. We need a graphic designer and this and this and this. And I could put it all together. 
because I'd already been doing it for a bunch of years at that point in time. He brought in the right team and I was one of those team members and it's been pretty great. Back this up. Let's go back to square one. We've walked through the initial process, the pain points and the three things you need. But I'm curious, how did he come up with the idea that that's what nonprofits needed? What was his needs analysis? I mean, I think it was experience. He'd been a part of a bunch of nonprofit boards. We, we had this saying in early 48 and 48, like nonprofits have a habit of, of doing good, but not looking good. Your average nonprofit is doing just amazing work, like just unbelievable work. And their websites are just garbage. And the messaging is just gar. And like nobody understands what they're doing. And he's looking at these websites. He's, he's a part of these boards. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, like, let's showcase the work. If you think about it, a website is kind of the foundational marketing messaging element that a nonprofit needs in order to succeed. It's essentially the first thing you've got to have. Because it's what's going to allow you to be validated right. to the larger community. It's going to let them know that you are real and you exist in the world and this is what you're about. Well, stages of marketing 40, 50 years ago, you had to have a business card. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, now yeah. The, the business card's really not that essential anymore nope. because people are digitally connected and right. that's where they go to go find out what you do. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's, well, we, we've, we've tackled that. So what else you got? What's on the future? Well, I mean, the, for, for me, the future is always uh, some kind of entrepreneurship, probably. Like, I'm, I've got a couple of companies that I'm I'm trying to grow right now, and I'm always thinking about others that I can start, but I've only got so much time and so many resources. You know, so you want me to talk about that? Is that You still got a finger in the pie of 48 and 48? Yeah, mostly in a support role. So I'm on the board, okay. so I help essentially just give advice when advice is, is requested. I, I don't, I have no direct operational role. Um, and our executive director, Seema, is fantastic. She's just done a phenomenal job. So I basically try to support her and stay out of the way is really my, my main goal. Yeah. I do offer tech support during the weekends. So I hop on Slack and answer tech questions during the weekends. And that's how I see. Going from marketing and or website development to vocal connections with people on a podcast. Where did that come from? Do you have a radio background? No, no, no. I got, I got two stories for this that explain how I got to where I am like with this whole podcasting. Or is this a carryover from the church thing that you just like? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, two, so two events happened. One was, I believe in 2015, I was meeting up with my friend Sanjay Parikh. Sanjay is one of those people that uh, you sort of want to be in his orbit. You know, like there's certain people in your life and you're like, oh, they're successful. They've done amazing things. I need to like be around them. So like some of that will like rub off, like wash off. <laughs> so Sunday falls in that category. So I would hit him up every like six months, like, hey, let's have coffee. And he was kind enough to yep. say yes. And so uh, one of those six months, he said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this incubator. Come and check it out. It's a tech incubator. So I went and checked it out. We're doing the tour. He points to this room and he goes, well, let me show you the professional podcast studio. Let me show you, show you that. So we look at the podcast studio and then he kind of offhand says, you know, I've got this podcast studio and I'm running this incubator. I really should have a podcast. I'm like, I will help you run a podcast. Let's do a podcast together. And he goes, okay. So on a whim, we started that. Uh, it became Tech Talk, y'all. We've, I think we're on episode like 267. We do, it's a weekly technology news podcast. And it's Sanjay and I just talking about what happened this week in tech news, just cracking each other up. Like I, <laughs> I never laugh harder than I laugh when I'm recording podcasts. It's the greatest thing ever. Kind of, that kind of like yeah. got me going in podcasting. So then I'm, I'm trying to grow my digital marketing agency and I'm thinking, you know, podcasting is, is growing and I want to have more clients at the time. My goal, I want to have more clients are nonprofits and, and, you know, ideally larger nonprofits. How can I get in front of those nonprofits? Well, I decided I'm going to start a podcast about nonprofit marketing where I'm going to interview 
high-level nonprofit marketers about nonprofit marketing, and the target audience is also nonprofit marketers. So I'm right. interviewing my target market and the content's for my target market, yeah. and it's amazing. And so in doing that, somehow I started reaching out to all of these large nonprofits, and I reached out to Susan G. Komen's head of marketing and actually got a response, which was like the most amazing day ever. And I'm like, this is fantastic. So I interview Komen's head of marketing, at the end of the year, she, she goes, Adam, uh, can we can we talk for a few more minutes? I'm like, yes, let's talk some more. Uh, let's be best friends. Yes. Can we be buddies? Yeah. You know, like, yes. She goes, you know, we've been thinking about doing a podcast for Komen. Can you help us with that? And can you host it? Yes, I can. Now, and it's one of the best things I've ever done personally and in my career. It's one of my absolute favorite things because I interview all these people about these amazing stories related to breast cancer and, and hopefully inspire some hope some uh, compassion in the community. So so then fast forward again to 2019 and my digital agency did pretty well and we got acquired and, and wrapped up into a larger agency. Then COVID hit, I left that larger agency and I did some nonprofit CMO stuff, which was really fun and I really enjoyed that. I did that four days a week and I needed a one day a week gig. And I was like, I'm gonna do podcasting as a business because I really like it and I'm, I think I'm pretty good at it and I'm gonna offer this as earth. And so I started doing more and more and more of that. And then in 2022, that became yeah. my full-time thing. And now Sunjay and I are partners at Edgewise Media, and it's fantastic. So what I want to point out here is in this historical perspective, what I heard was an opportunity popped you in the face and you said, hell yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I'll do it. Right. I mean, it's like it's just like that with 40 and 48, right? It's like, yes, I will do that. So let's talk about that personality, yeah. either plus or flaw. I don't know how you want to call that, okay. yet, but it's, it's both. both. It can... I say yes to things that I shouldn't say yes to for sure. <laughs> like I'm picking up some giant movie back. Why? why did I say yes? I'm pretty sure I had a family wedding this weekend. Yes. Yeah, that's why. I need to get out of here. I got to go to Denver right now. So yeah. Yeah. That spark of seeing possibilities that overcomes an internal mechanism of either fear or those people behind in your memory that say, oh, you shouldn't be doing this or, uh, you know, right. yeah. where does that balance yeah. come to be able to look and see okay. and be yeah. aware that, hey, this this could be something. Yeah. Bring that up yeah, because yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. very much yeah. like that. I, it's, I think it's genetic myself Yeah, yeah. because opportunity is something sure. that it doesn't always have to be cognitive. It's almost like a, an emotional, like, oh, yeah, that, ooh. You know, you can feel the juice, right? So what is that for you? I think there's a couple okay. things. The first is a part of my personality is, oh, you see, I can't do that? Watch, Watch me. And yeah. so, like, that's part of why I started a nonprofit as a, as a high schooler, because I'm like, what? You said, I get, like, oh, I got that. Like, we, we, we started a nonprofit in high school, raised, like, 30 grand for some stuff. We had a bank account. We had a, we were five hundred one c three. Like we were legit. Like it, it can be done. Like watch me do this. So that's that's part of it. The other part of it is I think you have to recognize that there's certain people in your life that can help you get to where you want to go. When they open a door to an opportunity, you would be insane not to say yes. So for example, if, if somebody other than Sanjay had said like you know, they're gonna do it in pocket, and maybe it's like somebody that yeah. you know that is not anywhere near where he's not the entrepreneur son he's not as ambitious or whatever else i probably would have said no because i it's not about the podcast it's about the person and so for me it was like oh i get to hang out with sunjay every week and learn from him and, and talk and be, like we could be we could be buds like oh yeah let's do that you know and now he's one of my closest friends and same thing with jeff like at the time jeff and i were just you know with 40 and 48 we were like just becoming like pretty decent friends 
but we can like hang out all the time now and like do this thing together. And like, because of that, I ended up being able to try. I mean, Jeff and I traveled to London together. We traveled to New York together a bunch of times. We took our, both, we took two of our sons to New York with us. Like we did all these amazing things and all these amazing adventures. And now he's also one of my very closest friends just because I got the, I said yes to the opportunity that would put me in his orbit more often. And it's been one of the greatest things I've ever done. I mean, both those. Ones. So is entrepreneurship something that is a family trait? I mean, yeah. So my mom was a lawyer. She started her own law practice. She did pretty well at it, I would say. She did a little bit of real estate stuff. She did pretty well at that as well. You know, she kind of had that example. Um, Mindset. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, my, my dad, uh, he was not an entrepreneur, but he was a leader in, in corporate America. And I, I got to kind of experience, but like when he was working full-time, he was a high, pretty high up at Bell South Mobility, which became AT&T and whatever. And so he had a car phone back when like no one had a car, like nobody had a car phone, you know, in the, in the early eighties. And so I still remember like we, I'd, he'd pick me up from school and we'd be riding home and he'd be like on conference calls. Like he's the boss, like telling people like, well, let's do this. Let's not do this. Let's do it. And so you, you learn a lot just by absorbing all your type of stuff, you know? So, so I think I learned a lot of leadership stuff from kind of overhearing my dad and those conference calls and certainly learned a lot of entrepreneur. I mean, my mom is hard. Like mom's like, let's go on an adventure. And I'm like, okay, let's go, <laughs> let's go get lost and go on an adventure. That sounds great. You know, it's a lot of entrepreneur stuff from her for sure. Yeah. I'm going to tip the hat towards your dad and that technology uh, access that you had. Yeah. Might've planted the seed yeah. of technologies yeah. like really cool, man. Listen, I was the kid whose dad had a phone in his car, and that was, like, I'd be on the way home from school. Yeah. Hey, I want to call all my little friends on the street and see exactly. if they're home so I can let them know. I'm going I'm to be home in a couple of minutes. I'm calling you from the car. From the car. I know. That was it. That was it. Thank you for sharing and giving us a glimpse of what has led you on the path, or at least been on the side or in the way or in the pathway itself, that created all these opportunities for you and that you've got the continual observation skill to just keep plugging away, you know, go back to that first big thing you said about that start a nonprofit. You've got to have that, oh, you know, the, the ability to suck it up and just yeah. keep moving, yeah. you know? Yeah, that compulsion to do it no matter what. Compulsion to do it. Not like that, you have to have that like, oh, you think I can't do this? You think I won't succeed? I got this. That's That's got to be your mentality. Well, thanks for sharing that all today. and. Let's have another conversation soon, I say. Yeah, this is fun. Let's do it again, for sure. You have just finished our latest Because You Need to Know, a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services. Please join us on LinkedIn and find us at pioneer-ks.org.